Well, good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And let's come before the Lord and ask him to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, we're, we're so blessed to be able to have access to your word. We pray that you would give us uh, understanding this morning, illumine your word, um, help us to understand what it is you're communicating with us this morning, what we need to learn from this text. And, and Father, not just to sink it into our minds, but to uh, drive it deep within our hearts um, that not only would we understand, but we would submit to what you teach us. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come to our text this morning, allow me to read quickly from John chapter 10 and verse 40 through the opening 16 verses of John's, John's gospel uh, in, verse, uh, 11, in chapter 11. We're just going to set the stage here a little bit. John chapter 10 and verse 40. He went away across, uh, again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I, I read this to help us to understand the journey that we happen to find Jesus and the twelve on here in our passage in Matthew's Gospel. This region across the Jordan, or the Judea beyond the Jordan, as Matthew refers to it, is where we found Jesus to begin Matthew in chapter 19. It was there that the message came that it came to the Lord that Lazarus was ill. And at that time, Jesus announced that they were going to Jerusalem to awaken him. 
And I connect these two events because we see here in John, the disciples are well aware of the desire of the Jews to kill Jesus. And it's clear, to Thomas at least, that should the twelve go with Jesus to Jerusalem at this time, and of course we know that Bethany is just a couple of miles removed from Jerusalem, that if they were to go at this time, and, and of course it's the Passover, so, so Jerusalem is the target destination, and if they go to Jerusalem, not only will Jesus be the target of the Jews, but they will be the target of the Jews as well. It was there, the, the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, that the Pharisees had tested Jesus regarding divorce. And then the little children were brought to Jesus to lay hands on them and to pray for them. And our Lord used these as an object lesson of those to whom belong the kingdom of heaven. It's at that time that the journey began to Jerusalem. And it seems almost as if that as soon as that journey began, the rich young ruler came. He came to Jesus with his question, what do I need to do? What is the deed I must accomplish in order to have eternal life? And of course, we've been through all of that discourse surrounding that event. We, we've, we've seen the response, the, the, the question, the disciples, about what they can receive then. I mean, after all, they did give up everything. They did follow Jesus. So what's in it for us, Jesus? What can we expect and Jesus did instruct on rewards, and he taught of the first being last and the last being first. And, of course, we saw that parable that he instructed the disciples, the, the workers in the vineyard. And last week, we looked at Jesus' instruction, the fourth time in Matthew's gospel, on the heels of that parable of the laborers in the vineyard, as they were yet on their way to Jerusalem, to the fact of what awaited Jesus when they arrived. Arrest, condemnation, his being handed over to the Gentiles, upon which he would be mocked, flogged, crucified, and on the third day raised from the dead. And here's where we pick up our text today. So Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what it is you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came 
not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We won't make it through all of this text today, but uh, you, you, you read this portion here, you know, Jesus explains all of what's going to happen. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised from the dead. And, and you come to this portion of the text, and it's almost like, did they even hear a word he said? Uh, in, in the account, it seems that they went right from, I, I believe it's verse 28 in, in Matthew 19, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, the son, uh, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They jump, it seems, right from that passage to today's passage, ignoring the whole first will be last, ignoring the whole I'll be handed over, crucified, And realistically, in, in what we read today, it sure seems that this is the attitude of the disciples here as well, so absolutely focused on self that they haven't really connected what Jesus has just finished saying is going to take place. In Matthew's presentation of the events that we see here, it seems as though while Jesus' mind is so firmly fixed and focused on his coming humiliation, while he is so focused on his sacrificial death and on his victory over the grave, the twelve are clearly more, as we see in our passage, these who are traveling with him, they are focusing on what it is that's going to be theirs as they come into the kingdom. They're considering their own honor, their own position, their own comforts to come. As Charles Spurgeon rightly states here, alas, poor human nature. And as we examine the text today, easy it is to see the issue in the thinking of James and John and of course their mother, but we should also look more closely and see that the, the, the problem in their thinking is also the same problem in the thinking of the ten. The problem within their thinking is also the very same problem that is within our own hearts. We all have so much room for growth in the topic that we're focusing on this morning. Verse 20 begins with the word then, at that time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that immediately after Jesus spoke of his coming crucifixion and resurrection, that the very next words out of his mouth were, or the very next things that happened were, you know, right here. But, but it is a connective, and, and it's a short distance of time between the two. Uh, and by the way, Mark's gospel also immediately follows Jesus' teaching on his coming crucifixion and resurrection. He follows it immediately with this same passage. And so it is likely really near immediate future that, that this event takes place. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with their mother, they come to Jesus and they bring a request. 
Now, it's important to think, uh, to, as we think here, to piece a couple of things together uh, to, to, to see the family relationship in view here. If we read the gospel accounts in tandem and we compare Matthew 27 and verse 56, Mark 15 and verse 40, John 19 and verse 25, we see that the mother of Zebedee's sons is none other than Salome. And she happens to be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she was one of the women that traveled with Jesus and ministered to Jesus and to his disciples. And so this is, this is Jesus' aunt that's coming here and making this request. And, uh, and James and John, well, they would be Jesus' first cousins. And I think it's likely uh, helpful to our understanding as to why this mother comes on behalf of her sons here. Clearly, this is the case here. In fact, in Mark's account, Mark doesn't even record the mother. She, Mark just records the two sons, James and John, asking for themselves. He cuts out the middleman, as it were, their mother. This request is coming from the brothers, but it's coming through their mother. And uh, it, it seems to suggest that maybe they believed Jesus would be more receptive to affirming the request if it came from his aunt rather than from themselves. And notice how the request is presented here. She comes and she comes in faith. She comes in reverence. She, she came bringing with her her two sons, kneeling before him in a posture of worship. Actually, the, the King James translates it as she came worshiping him and desiring of him a certain thing. And so they have a specific request in mind. And I think Mark's account here is really helpful. Teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They, they desire this one particular thing, and they press Jesus in how they ask for this, this request, asking that he promise, even before knowing what it is they're asking for, promise you'll give us what we want. It's kind of like they're they're asking for Jesus to sign a blank check. Give us whatever we ask of you, and then we'll let you know what we want. I mentioned the family connection here because I think it really helps us to understand how these could come with such a request. They are, they are playing on their family relationship with the respect and honor that Jesus should grant to his aunt and to his cousins as they come in humility before him. Verse 21 says, And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. These, to use Spurgeon's words, held to a very courtly notion of what the kingdom would ultimately become. 
There's a, there's a self-seeking here that, that we're going to need to deal with in this text. And yet, at the same time, there is an immensely high view of Christ. And, and, the, and there's a faith and there's a trust in Jesus that is to be commended, really, in, in Mary's coming, in James and John's coming before him. But uh, this, the, he responds bringing clarity and, and really correction to their views, but he does so in, in a spirit of gentleness. Now, we need to think back to what these have already heard over the, these, these past few years as they followed Jesus. I mean, right from the time that they, they were set apart as Jesus' disciples, Matthew chapter 10, immediately Jesus instructs them on what it is that awaits them. They will be received by some. They will be rejected by others. They are sent as lambs among wolves. Matthew 10 and verse 17, Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Matthew 10, verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will, be, will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, consider the words that Jesus had spoken to these in Matthew 20 regarding his coming death. These should be able to piece things together here uh, and see that what he is to endure is also what is awaiting for them. We catch a glimpse of this in John 11. As I read earlier, Thomas says, yeah, okay, Jesus, sure, let's go to Jerusalem. Yeah, we might as well die with you. They, they do to some extent understand that Jesus is going to be killed. And they do to some extent understand that their fate is tied to his. But it isn't said in faith. It's actually stated by Thomas there in John 11 in unbelief. It's stated in a denial of God's purpose, in a denial of God's plan. These are, if anything, looking for a way to avoid such persecution and death, and all the while seeking the very glory of the kingdom apart from what Jesus said would be involved. Martin Luther once stated this, the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. What we see in, in these is, as Leon Morris states, Quote, it shows a complete failure to understand the essential thrust of Jesus' teaching. It was not a minor misunderstanding, but an error at the heart of what service in the kingdom means. End quote. In Luke's gospel, 
we, we don't have this particular event recorded for us. But what we do have in the account is the rich young ruler, and, and we do have the journey to Jerusalem that takes them uh, from Judea beyond the Jordan through Jericho, where Jesus heals that blind man, where he meets this little man, Zacchaeus, where he saves that man. Jesus there also gives a revelation once again of his coming arrest and condemnation and crucifixion, just like we have in the account in Matthew and in Mark. But then in Luke 19 and verse 11, uh, we, we see this, that, that as they drew near to Jerusalem, there, those people in the crowd that are traveling along with him, they were, quote, supposing that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's what they're expecting. They're expecting we ride into Jerusalem, they hand over the keys to the kingdom, Jesus sits on the throne, rules the world, here we go, welcome to the kingdom. It's like his words about his coming death were never heard. We mentioned last week that our God is sovereign over the message preached as well as over the message received. Thus far, the message has not been received among the twelve. Oh, they've heard it. They've even grasped part of it, but not fully. They, they took from the message what they wanted to hear, but no more. Now, that talk about death, not so interested in that whole part. No, no, no. The glory, that sounds great. Let's get on with that. But not the death. Now, are we not inclined to think likewise? So there's some needed correction for us in this passage as well, isn't there? These were still under the assumption, it seems, that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to take the throne to be recognized for who he truly is, the Christ they've already confessed him to be. And they're so steeped, really, in the cultural understandings of Messiah and what he would do that they are just absolutely deaf to his words about the cross before the crown. Now, to be fair, Matthew's gospel rightly focuses on the kingdom. These have heard from Jesus himself much about the kingdom. Even in just the discourse of this trip alone to Jerusalem, they know Jesus is the king. They know he is to take that rightful place on the throne. And so there is faith in them, but only a partial understanding. Jesus' promise that whatever we ask of you, you'll give. Promise, okay? And Jesus' response, okay, what do you want? The brother's mother then asks, allow my sons to have the greatest seats of honor in your kingdom, one at your right, one at your left. Now, there's, there's an honor for Jesus in that question for sure. 
I mean, he is, in fact, the one seated on the middle throne, right? He's the king. She knows this. The, the, the sons know this. They're not asking for the highest throne. They're just asking for the highest smaller thrones, the highest thrones beside his. He's seated on the main throne, but it is those seated nearest to him who are the next most honored in this kingdom. Jesus has spoken of rewards. He, he spoke of the twelve seated on thrones judging the nation of Israel. And in, and in trust of that statement that Jesus made in chapter 19, Salome comes seeking this benefit for her sons, which of course would also give great honor to herself as their mother. Now, this is not completely new to us. We recall, for example, in Matthew chapter 18, the twelve were arguing. What were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Which among them would be the greatest in this, this coming kingdom? We can think, for example, of Matthew chapter 16, Peter's confession. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Oh, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Ah, and then Peter, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. Oh, look, Peter's got the highest seat, right? Well, just a couple of statements later, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Hey, maybe there's hope. Maybe Peter isn't going to get the highest seat. Maybe it's still up for grabs. And so there's, there's a, a, a wrestling, it seems, amongst the disciples for who's going to get those highest seats of honor. James and John think maybe they have a chance. Their mother believes so too. Matthew 18, of course, isn't the only time that we see the disciples bickering about who is the greatest. Um, correction is brought in our passage today. But even as late as the night that Jesus is betrayed, we still see sitting at the table of the Last Supper, the disciples are arguing at who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so this arguing really is about who's going to sit on those highest seats of honor at Jesus' right and at his left. Question, who does that sound like? I mean, I mean don't get me wrong, these, these are Jesus' disciples. They're believers, right? They have acknowledged Jesus as Messiah. They have trusted in Jesus as the Christ, these are, as Jesus said, to receive honor, to receive reward in the kingdom, and yet, doesn't this quest for honor sound a lot like the Pharisees? Matthew chapter 23 and verse 6 speaks of those Pharisees who, quote, love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Two things here, two things here, two, two words that are used in the Greek very much related to each other, the place of honor, the best seats, the, 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 the related words meaning the seats of first place, the highest honor. 
Boy, that sounds like the disciples here in our passage. That sounds like what they're seeking. Now, we are not to be like the Pharisees. We, Jesus has warned just over and over again. We're going to see more of that as we come into Matthew chapter 23. But truth be told, sometimes we are far too much like the Pharisees. Sometimes we are so concerned with how others might see us, with how we might, might be honored. Do others receive the place we feel ourselves deserving of? Do we get that esteemed position? You know, sometimes in church leadership, we run into this from time to time, people believing that they can only serve if they have that leadership position. They only serve if they have that that. that place of prominence and and when it's seen red flags shoot up quickly when we think like this we're not being christ-like in the least no we're being pharisee-like and sadly as spurgeon said that poor human nature it resides in each and every one of us doesn't it It resides in each of us. And it can crop up in each of us. Even in us as believers. And you know what needs to happen? We need to put it to death. That's what needs to happen. We need to put it to death. Philippians chapter 2 is written for our benefit here to help us. We are not to be self-seeking like the Pharisees, self-serving like the Pharisees. No, we are to be self-giving. We are to be self-denying for the benefit of others. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction, affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that every single day. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. Count others more significant. Hey, Steve, count others more significant than yourself. He says, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And and of course, that's exactly what Jesus looked like, isn't it? And Paul goes on in that passage to show that. And that's what we're supposed to emulate as believers. That's what we're supposed to look like. Self-sacrificing. Giving ourselves so that another can be honored. In fact, listen to Paul's words in Romans 12. A passage that's just always really stood out to me. I try to whittle these down to like one single verse and I, I, I can't. It's just like the whole passage is so good. Listen to what Romans 12 beginning at verse 3 says. 
For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, um, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What a great passage. And lest we not catch this, Paul actually says all of that right on the heels of his statement to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Right on the heels of his statement that we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. What does it look like? Well, it looks like that passage, verses 3 through through whatever I read through there. Be like Christ. Be like Christ. That's the point. I love that that line in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine what the church of Jesus Christ would look like if we actually did that? If we strove with everything in us to outdo each other in honoring each other. What a beautiful picture that would be. That if, that if we actually went out of our way to secure that seat of honor, not for ourselves, but for you, for each other, Wow. If we were so concerned for each other's good, so seeking of each other's honor, not for how it benefits us, like Salome here seeking to establish her son's places, which ultimately blesses her, but simply because we love one another. Now, the other ten here in this passage, as we will see, they get upset because, of course, they too desire those same seats of honor. And so they also need some correcting here. But 
at the same time, if you think about it, there's a reason for them to get upset, isn't there? That Pharisee likeness of seeking self-honor, well, let's just call it for what it is. It's ugly, isn't it? It's ugly when we seek honor for ourselves. And, and when it shows itself, everyone around us usually sees the ugliness coming out of our lives, right? While one's engaged in seeking honor for themselves, they're usually blind to their own pride. Verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. Leon Morris writes this, They were clearly viewing the kingdom in terms of the contemporary understanding of splendor. Jesus would reign, they thought, over a realm much like that of the Romans, only more glorious. Despite all the teachings that Jesus had given, they had still not realized that the kingdom meant lowliness, sacrifice, rejection in this world. Who would ask for places of honor in such a kingdom? Who could ask for places of honor in it? To ask the question is to show that one has understood what the king, has not understood what the kingdom is. It is impossible to seek greatness for oneself in it. I really like what Morris says there. If the kingdom means suffering, well, who among us is asking for the highest seat of honor? Jesus, would you please give me the most suffering I can possibly... In How many of us pray like that? No. But if we really understand the kingdom and we're asking for the seat of highest honor... That's really what we're asking for. Clearly, these didn't get the memo here, or at least not yet. There would come a time after Jesus goes to the cross and overcomes the grave, but not yet. And so, Jesus' response here, you don't know what you're asking for. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 11 and 12 if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But notice, suffering comes first. The cross before the crown. Or, maybe the clearest of all passages I can think of, Romans chapter 8 and verses 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. John MacArthur writes of that passage, Suffering from physical affliction 
and such as disease, deformity, accident, or from emotional distress of a lost job or the death of a loved one, can be used by the Lord to strengthen believers spiritually. He can help them to grow even through problems and hardships they bring on themselves because of foolishness or sin. But the affliction that brings eternal glory is that which is brought about and is willingly endured because of faithfulness to the Lord. It is suffering because of the gospel, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The one who has the greatest glory besides Christ in heaven will be the one who has faithfully endured the greatest suffering for him on earth. You see, this is specifically the suffering in view here in Romans 8, in 1 Peter 5, and of course that which Jesus is pointing to here in our particular text today, it's the suffering for the sake of righteousness. It's the suffering because of the gospel. It's the suffering because you cling to Christ. And as the world hated Him, so the world will hate you. That's the suffering. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you willing to drink of this cup? You realize this cup is the cup of suffering. And he refers to the kind of suffering that he himself is to, uh, is to endure. Now, of course, Christ is going to endure a suffering that none of us ever will. None of us will ever endure the, the wrath of God poured out on on us to pay the price for sinners. None of us will ever endure a vicarious death under the wrath of God for others, paying their cost when we have no sin ourselves. None of us will ever face that. We will never die in the place of sinners to cover their cost, but that isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's simply saying, the way of Christ is the way of the cross. You want to follow me? Take up your cross. That's what's going to be required. It's the way of suffering. Much like Peter and all of the twelve claiming that they would go anywhere, they would do anything, they would, they would walk with Christ even unto death. And that, right at the very last supper, just a few hours before he's arrested, so too here James and John speak far too quickly. Are you willing to drink from this cup? We are. They haven't really thought through the question well and answer in haste. And yet Jesus knows what is to come for them. He knows they will be strengthened by the Lord they will face that great suffering themselves in the future. Verse 23, he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You will drink of my cup, but first let's deal with you will drink. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. John suffered much as well. Church history records that John was tortured by being dipped into a cauldron of hot oil. On another occasion, he was forced to drink poison. 
What we do know for certain is that the later years of his life were spent in exile on the harsh isle of Patmos. Yes, both of these would indeed suffer for Christ. But, but, Jesus says, notice, he doesn't hesitate to speak of the Father's sovereign plan, including those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The rewards of the Father, which from what I see amounts to the idea of position in the kingdom here, is not based on you know, sheer personal determination. It's not based on, on self-ambition. It's not determined by favoritism or arbitrary choice, but rather by sovereign will by God's plan, by God's purpose. These things have, from before the foundations of the world were laid, been determined by the Father. People often speak of, of, of determinism as if it's a bad thing. And normally they do so because they don't understand what it is that is determined and what is not. They're usually, these would usually try to, to, to attribute man's sinfulness and man's eternal punishment to God's determination should they not be saved and come to God's cost. But that's not true. That's not true at all. All men are sinners. All men rightly face the very vengeance of God. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. No one will ever go to hell because God chose to send him there. No, the wages of sin is death. Men will go to hell because that's exactly what they have earned. That's what they deserve. And the fact is, we've all earned that. But where determinism comes in is in the fact that any men that are ever saved from which that which we have all earned. We are saved by the grace of God as he determined before we even were made to extend saving grace to us. He didn't have to do that. It wasn't just ambiguous uh, you know, extended to all while God hoped that some might come to receive it? No. God determined to save a people unto Himself according to His purpose, according to His good pleasure. Every single Christian is just as worthy of God's vengeance as is the non-Christian. The difference is in God's determined purpose to save His elect. Well, so it is with these positions of honor that James and John are seeking in the kingdom. They are determined by the Father. And not even the Son can alter those determinations. Now, of course, we know that the Son is in complete agreement with the Father. So it's not like Jesus has a desire to give it to John and James, but the Father won't let him. No, Jesus' will and the Father's will are in perfect harmony with one another. And notice 
Though Jesus says these will indeed drink of his cup, the cup of suffering, it does not say that those places of honor are bestowed with, uh, with suffering as the criteria for their allocation. Now, maybe if we try harder to suffer more. No. No, that's not how we attain to those thrones. No. These have been determined to be given to specific individuals by God the Father according to His mercy and His pleasure. And I, I, I want to continue, I want to finish up this passage, but we don't have time this morning. Lord willing, we'll pick it up at verse 24 next week. But allow me to close with some of the thoughts of J.C. Ryle on the implications for this text for us. I, I think what he says here is very good. There are many Christians who are very like this woman and her sons. They see in part and know in part the things of God. They have faith enough to follow Christ. They have enough knowledge enough to hate sin and to come out of the world. And yet, there are many truths of Christianity of which they are deplorably ignorant. They talk ignorantly. They act ignorantly. They commit many sad mistakes. Their acquaintance with the Bible is very scanty. Their insight into their own hearts is very small. But we must learn from these verses to deal gently with such people because the Lord has received them. We must not set them down as graceless and godless because of their ignorance. We must remember that true faith may lie at the bottom of their hearts, though there is much rubbish at the top. We must reflect that the sons of Zebedee, whose knowledge at one time so imperfect, became at later periods pillars of the church of Christ. So just a believer may begin his course in much darkness and yet prove finally a man mighty in the Scriptures, a worthy follower of James and John. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for reminding us, Lord God, that we are not to be self-seeking. We are not to be, you know, driving for what we might gain to... to place our own ambitions at the top of our, of our drive. But Father, we're to be self-giving, we're to be self-serving, we're to be self-denying. Um, Father, in your kingdom, the greatest will be the lowest, the humblest, the servant. Father, we, we all need to learn this lesson, and we need to learn it well. Uh, Father, would you teach us would you continue to impress upon our hearts our need to go low, to love one another, to outdo one another in showing honor, and cause us, through that, that, um, that lowless, lowliness of heart, to really reflect Christ to each other and to the world around us. A, a very different picture from what we see in the world. Father, we pray this 
that you would use us as your instruments, your vessels of mercy in this world to proclaim Christ, that you would be honored. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.